Welcome everyone to the Tahoe Tap, the podcast for all things Lake Tahoe. I am Rob Galloway alongside Mike Perrin on this first week of March. And if you're wondering why the intro sounds a little bit different, Mike got a little too rowdy at the soccer game last night. So we're, we're saving as much of his voice as we can for this episode. But we promise we will get through just like we always do. We have a very timely guest on the show this week, Denise Upton with Lake Tahoe Wildlife Care. Uh, she's going to be giving us some insight into some of that bear chatter we've been hearing about lately. But before I start down the road of giving you your local news tis- tidbits, uh, we're going to have to thank our sponsor. Of course, you know, Aleworks powering this podcast. They've got two locations of beer and self-serve pizza over on the state line side, tucked in between the casinos. We were talking about it, Rob. It pretty much flips into a club Thursday through Sunday or one of those ultra loud places. It is wild with DJs and everything. And then you've got uh, at the Y in South Lake on the California side, you've got Aleworks cocktail corner and then the bistro coming soon, which is going to be a uh, upscale dining options and two more announcements that are coming, but I'm not allowed to say, but Lucas and his team are crushing it. And we appreciate them sponsoring this podcast. All right, Rob, take it away with the local headlines. Well, I mean, much like we always do here in the wintertime and, and we do on this podcast, we're talking about snowpack and given what little we received in February combined with that big old fat goose egg we got in January, uh, this past Monday, so February 28th, uh, measurement is in and we are sitting at about 85% to normal down from that glorious, you know, 200 or plus 200% back on January 1st. Thankfully, back in October, we had some really good precipitation. So the ground is or was nice and sogged up before the, the big snow came in. Um, give you a little contact, ta- context from last year. Um, you know, last year was was really dry. We had like no no moisture in the ground at all. So when that snow melted, uh, that basically the ground soaked it all up. Um, and that's, that's the biggest difference between what, what last year was and what this year was. But as um, we do have the, uh, the streams moving a little bit better as a result of that. And uh, why they don't believe that we're going to get a miracle march this year, we are only really one good, maybe atmospheric river away from moving that needle back to, to being a little above normal. So fingers crossed here in March that we get a little bit more precipitation. And uh, I did mention uh, our, our guest and bear, Hank the Tank. He made some national headlines here. But, uh, you know, making all the rounds on his on talk shows and newspapers, he was all over this last week and a half or so. Um, but uh, Diane, Denise, I keep, did I say Diane? Denise. Uh, she, she's going to be answering some questions as it relates to bears in general, help clear the air on maybe some of those items that are swirling around Hank. Uh, but as many people know by now, the hunt was on for the 500-pound black bear, and news came out that he was not the lone culprit in break-ins um, he was being blamed for. Uh, I guess we had a, a crack CSI bear team on the case. Uh, and, and Mike, I, re- I want to know how that job came about, right? It's like a wildlife detective. Um, yeah. Where, where do you start that process? <laughs> like that could be a great game. series on uh, primetime I- television. Yeah, I mean, even if it's, uh, you know, it, it sounds a lot like a, a show like my kids would watch. So maybe it's even Nickelodeon. But regardless, you heard it here. Like, we want our royalties, right? Like <laughs> Paw Patrol, but Hank Patrol? Yeah, yeah. You know, solving those crimes of the uh, the critters in the forest. <laughs> oh, anyways, uh, Altera, right? So they're back in the news after announcing plans to invest uh, $344 million in capital improvements for next winter. The news that brings it home here is that this will include a base-to-base gondola. Um, and not to be... It, 
gondola or gondola there's actually two different ways to spell it and one is the actual you know lift that we're talking about but uh that's going to connect uh the resorts um palisades uh, 60 million dollars 65 million dollars is the expected price tag uh for the gondola and will connect alpine meadows to palisades giving folks the option for both mountains in a single day the ride is anticipated to take 16 minutes and this project isn't new it's been talked about a lot over the years you excited for it mike no not at all (laughs) hell yeah that's gonna be so great. I mean, I don't know how many times we've skied in the morning in Squaw and then driven over to Alpine in our ski boots. Uh, it's not the safest thing to do. So it'll be nice yeah. to just hop on the gondola. That sounds a little tough, a little tough. Uh, <laughs> and we got some news also, uh, East Shore uh, Trail. And uh, as of uh, Tuesday of this week to the uh, Tahoe Transportation District, they announced the implementation of parking fees for the trail on the border of Incline Village. And I believe this is the first year uh, parking fees have been implemented. I don't recall them doing this, um, you know, in the few years since since that trail has been uh, been created. But uh, they've been part of the plan moving forward, uh, or at least it's been part of the plan moving forward. Uh, fees are going to be a buck uh, an hour if you get there from 7 to 9 a.m. Then that shifts to $3 an hour uh, from 9 to 11. And then on weekends, that's going to turn into $4 an hour Friday through Sunday. Uh, and these fees are going to be in effect uh, until Memorial Day weekend when summer rates kick in, and then they'll probably include your firstborn. Um, I, I actually don't know what those rates be, but if I had to guess, I'm going to say maybe double or so. Um, and I don't know, you know, what they collect after the summer season as far as um, you know, it would be good to know how much money they collect, where that money's going to go. Um, it, the column, it, it also mentions a reminder that between Spooner Junction and Sand Harbor, parking is prohibited in many, many areas, um, but that doesn't stop people from doing it. Uh, neither does the $300 fine that many folks get when they're doing that. But, uh, you know, Mike, I want to throw it over to you. What do you think the over-under for times the road is closed due to tow trucks towing a violator in that little stretch of road? You're talking about 28, Highway 28? Yeah. Yeah. Oh man. Um, well, I don't know. Do they actually close? I guess they have to, but yeah, they do. They'll stop traffic in, in both directions. You know, I'm going to go in the hundreds, man. I've driven that so many times and, uh, geez, it, it's dangerous, but, uh, you know, I, I know a family that went to Disneyland recently and they paid 700 bucks to get in for one day just with tickets. That's nothing else. So $300 fine to enjoy Lake Tahoe. Hey, that's, that's all right. I guess they're willing to do it, but, uh, <laughs> well, that, that closes me out of my local side of things. Mike, we'll turn it over to you for, for some of those, uh, national conversation starters. Great reporting by the Tahoe Daily Tribune and Sierra Sun, uh, team there, but now turning over to some feathers that you can stick in your cap for getting back to socializing with your friends as more and more things open up. This one coming from Amazon announcing today that they are rolling out their Just Walk Out technology in Whole Foods with frictionless checkout. Whole Foods opened its first cashierless store in Washington, D.C. Using their all-new tech, shoppers can scan their hands, creepy, or a QR code, I'm, I'm a little more into that, I guess, to charge groceries to their Amazon accounts without ever interacting with another person so this for all the all the introverts out there just loving life lately uh (laughs) next up on the rollout sherman oaks california this summer and amazon is also working on extending its frictionless checkout technology into the suburban markets through its amazon go convenience store brands in uh like i said all those suburban markets so Pretty cool to see. Uh, I mean, you know, this is just the way it's going to be. You know, you hear new normal. 
that's that's pretty that's pretty i i guess i'll say creepy with scanning <laughs> the hands yeah scanning the hands is creepy but yeah. i mean i think the other stuff's kind of cool <laughs> all right change the subjects back to skiing and riding the indie pass launches just launched their spring pass and the 22-23 season passes so this pass was created three years ago with a mission to keep skiing affordable while banding together independent ski resorts and forming a viable alternative to the corporate resort mega passes so this pass gets you two days at 82 different resorts pretty awesome the price on that 189 bucks for the rest of this spring season or just throw down 279 for the rest of this spring and all of next season that's a pretty good that's a pretty good deal right great there. value you're going to spend quite a bit of money traveling to all these resorts you got to have quite a bit of time and uh, on your hands uh, so that's that's one thing to uh, note there and also disclosing that many of these indie passes uh, resorts don't offer that posh ski in, ski out lodging or fancy restaurants or on-site spas. So Rob, I, I don't think this one's for you. No, no on-site spas uh, <laughs> to take your boots off yeah. at. Uh, but they will deliver that authentic ski experience with great terrain, uncrowded slopes, and best of all, shorter lift lines. The mountain I grew up on and learned where to ski, China Peak above Fresno in the Central Valley, is on that pass. So Ooh, yeah. Uh, yeah, probably five and a half hour drive from Tahoe here, uh, along with 81 other resorts on the Indy Pass. So check it out. Nice. All right, uh, Major League Baseball has struck out for the time being. After nine straight days of intense negotiations, Commissioner Rob Manfred has announced the cancellation of opening day, which was scheduled for April 7th, and the first two series of 2022 season. So, and that's all due to no new collective bargaining agreement between the Players Association and the league or owners, uh, the conglomerate they have there. Many po main points of consternation, competitive balance tax thresholds, I don't even know what that is, uh, the minimum salary, that's a big one, and the size of new pre-arbitration bonus pool. So those are the main ones. There's a bunch of others listed in there that they couldn't agree upon. So this could result in the first regular season games lost to a labor dispute since 1995. I feel like baseball has the most uh, disagreements, I guess you could say. Uh, you yeah. always hear about this every, what, five, 10 years, they're locking out or shutting down the season or, or threats of that. So, you know, I'm wondering when XBL is coming out. You know, <laughs> we got uh, The Rock and all of his friends with the XFL so which celebrity is going to step up as the face of X baseball league? Rob, yeah. you got, you got any, uh, you got any thoughts? On who I, baseball's, baseball's still stuck a, a little bit more in the, uh, in the past. Um, they've had a hard time coming to grips with just trying to update the sport and, and roping in a new audience and these owners, man. I mean, I, I've read countless articles on this and it really falls in their laps. Uh, it's not the players, um, you know, they're, they're looking to get their fair shake as they should. And it's the owners or, you know, major league baseball as a whole that are just, they're not, they're not doing what they need to be doing to get this moving. So that's on them. Yeah. I, I like side it. with the owners. I, I think they should become more rich and yeah, <laughs> jeez, come on guys. I know. I know. All right. So you can train your dog to do tricks and now you can train your nose. 
this is not sponsored. It may sound like it at, at one point uh, at the end here, but if you still can't smell your coffee months after catching COVID, you are not alone. Loss of taste and smell affects about six out of every 10 COVID patients. One study shows that approximately 1.6 million people in the U.S. who had COVID also had a change or loss of smell lasting more than six months. So there's a company called Sniffly, which created a research-based training program to help you regain your sense of smell. It's $5.99 to access this four-part program, which touts recovering your sense of smell in anywhere from three to nine months with this training. So I'm going to drop the link in this pod description and let you guys check it out for yourself and take it or leave it right there. So um, 1.6 million people that still can't smell or taste pretty, pretty crazy. So, all right. And to finish it off, I'll give you the fact of the pod here. Back in 1869, Wyoming became the first U.S. state or territory, I should say, to grant women the right to vote a half century before the 19th Amendment was passed by Congress. And then speaking of Congress, women make up more than half the U.S. population, but they just they make up just a quarter of Congress. So there's a there's yeah. a little fact for you there with uh, in in light of Women's History Month. So there's, a lot, go, of crusty old, there's a lot of crusty old men that could if should get booted out of Congress. Yeah, yeah put some terms on it. <laughs> All right. We're going to take a quick break and we'll be back with your adventures. And the day of this pod is March 2nd, which is National Old Stuff Day. So we're going to talk about some of our old monuments, buildings, etc. around the Tahoe Basin. Stick with us. everyone the a portion of tahoe tap being adventure like we said march 2nd national old stuff day i thought we were going to be talking about you rob yeah (laughs) (laughs) but um (laughs) all right we'll we'll leave all the jokes aside and we'll get into our adventures that you can take uh checking out some history in lake tahoe take it away sir well you know so you said march 2nd national old stuff day uh, March 3rd is also World Wildlife Day, which is quite fitting. But you know what else March 3rd is? It is National If Pets Had Thumbs Day, Mike. I have no <laughs> idea what the hell that means. <laughs> is that? What the? National <laughs> If Pets Had Thumbs Day. <laughs> I need to just stop. Yeah. Th- th- you know, go figure. Whatever. All right. So I got some, um, I, I, what I think are, are some pretty cool places. Um, some old, some buildings are old, uh, some places that, uh, you know, maybe reminiscent of some past times, but I'm going to start out by talking about the Rubicon Point Lighthouse. And I, I know a lot of people have no idea that there is or was uh, a lighthouse in the basin. Um, and, and now it's, it's probably not like what you would expect, uh, but at one time, this held the title as the world's highest lighthouse. Uh, it overlooks, in you know, in my opinion, one of the most beautiful areas of the lake in DL Bliss. Um, 
you have it, it's really more Mike. I would say reminiscent of a wooden outhouse, um, but it is more than a hundred years old. Uh, there's a lot of people over the years, uh, you know, jerks that like to vandalize it. It's gone through some rehab projects, but uh, it was built in 1919. At that time, it cost 900 bucks, equivalent to about $14,000 now. And once you get there, um, you'll see trekking in, you know, materials probably wasn't that easy at that point. Um, the lighthouse light could be seen for over seven, seven, seven miles. I can't get that out, but uh, it was only in service for two years and they abandoned it for a more accessible locations about four miles north of, of that place but uh, basically what happened the ship carried fuel uh, it uh, once the fuel got to the shore a mule pulled a wagon three miles uphill and then the fuel was taken to the cliff where the where the uh, lighthouse resides but uh, all kinds of conspiracies theories out there about it we're not going to get into those today but uh, that hike to get there can be a little bit tricky in spots but I'll tell you what the view is well worth it and it's just it's just a pretty cool piece of history Mike I'm, I'm sure you've been there right I have a couple of times uh, great views great views yeah, absolutely. So my next uh, on the list here is the uh, the Donner Memorial State Park and Museum. Uh, everybody knows the Donner Party story, or do they, Mike? I don't know if everybody does, or at least the you know some of the facts. They probably know a little bit of the details. But I guarantee you, if you go there, you are going to have a whole different perspective and learn something you did not know. And while this isn't technically an old monument or a building, I'm including it because it touches on what I think is one of the most fascinating stories in the region. Um, the mu museum actually touches on more than just the Donner Party. You get some insight into Native Americans, which I'm always intrigued by, having a, a great-grandmother that was full-blooded Cherokee, uh, but also, you know, the uh, the building of the Transcontinental Railroad. Uh, it's even good for, you know, his history-thirsty kids. Uh, has some pretty cool AV presentations and kiosks, and the best part about it, it is free to enter. Although, you know, from parent to parent, if you are bringing kids, you will eventually need to explain the whole cannibalism thing um, you know, we also just had that team that uh, retraced the 100 mile ish or so path of the rescuers uh, over what was it the past week, week and a half yeah, or so? Yeah, a couple weeks ago. Yeah, right around there. You know, helping to bring to light, this was the 175th anniversary of the remaining or the rescuing of the remaining Donner Party. So all in all, pretty cool story there. And then the last um, place that I want to mention as far as history goes is the Emerald Bay Underwater State Park. Uh, this is christened as the very first underwater state park in California. You do have to scuba to check this out um, in all its glory, but I have never scubaed. Is it scuba scuba dived scuba dove it's not scuba I'll, dove. I'll take it yeah <laughs> <laughs> but I, I have never done that but so this is this is going to be a bucket um uh list item for me in tahoe but it doesn't mean that i can't talk about it because it's still pretty cool uh burial ground for many a ship that was used uh in the lake when things were cranking out and they were building vikings home so a lot of these were over 100 years old um there are a couple of different dives and sites that are marked uh, but if you get the opportunity to dive you can't be too handsy start snatching up the items they are all protected by state law and they cannot be removed or disturbed no matter what it is. So my question here, Mike, uh, and I'm sure there's a there's probably a lot of crap down there. You know, I don't know what's down there because, again, I, I haven't been down there. But um, the clean up the lake team that started their underwater cleanup last year. How do or how did they navigate this area or do they just leave Emerald Bay alone? And they're like, we can't touch it in there. Do you know? It's just so deep. Uh, so a lot of Emerald Bay didn't get cleaned up because there's some massive shelves in there. Um, Got it. Okay. Yeah. So. I guess that's that's the short of the answer. Okay, well, I'll take it. I will take it. Have you have you done any scuba? 
I have not. No scuba cert for me. Well, I I would like to do that and check it out. I think it'd be pretty cool. Yeah. All right. Cool. So I've got three here myself, and I'm going to start with on the West Shore, just above Emerald Bay there, is the Ed Zberg Sugar Pine Point State Park, 15 miles north north of South Lake Tahoe and just nine miles south of Tahoe City. You probably don't notice it because it's that nice, flat, long straightaway past all the slow pokes uh, on 89 West Shore there. So 50 years ago, the land that is now uh, Ed Zidberg, Sugar Pine State Park, was once host to the cross-country ski event of the 1960 Olympics. So uh, that, you know, uh, they used, utilized that area back then. The Hellman and Ehrman family, among other local landowners, supported the Olympics by granting the use of their properties there and using it as the ski venue. Uh, TRPA would not like this one back then. Land had to be modified in 1958 and 59 by the Sixth Army to comply with the race uh, requirements uh, that were installed by the FIS and required roads, bridges, and grading of all the dirt there. So um, plus on the lakeside right now, you have on the east side of 89, you have winter camping, which is operational for the first time in a few seasons. So check that out on the California State Parks website. Uh, Then over on the northeast side of the lake, you've got Sky Tavern. It is a hill that is mostly ignored by those speeding over the Mount Rose Highway to Tahoe's larger resorts, but in the post-World War II era, Sky Tavern was the premier spot to ski. Back in 1939, Wayne Polson, legendary figure of Squaw Valley, and his friend Ed Heath, uh, they installed a small rope toe on the hill. The land was then purchased by Robinson Neiman, who hired longtime Reno contractor Keiston Ramsey uh, to build a second rope toe. There was some Las Vegas mob drama that took place, and we'll fast forward through all of that. You can search the history there. But today, Sky Tavern is a nonprofit center with those rope toes and mainly focuses on summer and winter programs like sports trainings competitions, and weddings. So check out Sky Tavern's website. Pretty cool. And a lot of people don't know about it. They've got mountain biking in the summer. I'm sure we'll talk about that a little bit too, as we transition into spring and summer. Yeah, that's a great. And then Rob, what's older than Lake Tahoe itself? Even the water in the lake. That's older? Uh, Dinosaurs. The rocks that are around here. The rocks, okay. man. Yeah. Okay, so <laughs> these are some of the oldest things in Lake Tahoe before the glacier ripped through and filled up the lake. So I'm talking about Monkey Rock and Flume Trail, how you access it. So you park at Tunnel Creek Cafe. Don't forget to pay, as you mentioned, and follow that paved road behind the building, which heads south. So out and back total, uh, it's a moderate but heavily trafficked two and a half miles, about 500 feet of elevation gain. So pretty smooth. And uh, rumor has it that this rock was actually carved in the ears and the nostrils were carved in by an inclined village local who was going through a divorce. So he had some aggression to take out and made it look a little bit more like a monkey. Uh, So, yeah, I mean, I've I've heard a few of those. It's definitely had some work done. That rock has had some work done. Yeah, but really cool. The West Shore is your view because you're on the East Shore. And I think uh, it's exponentially more beautiful to check out because you've got all the snow over there, larger peaks. And if you time it right, you've got the sunset over on the West. So, uh, you know, you could be at, say, Homewood uh, and you're looking across to the East and you've got Genoa Peak and, you know, Cave Rock and a lot more dry landscape. So 
you get to check out the West Shore as you're on your hike. And then fun fact for this area, thanks to a handful of donors, the Tahoe Fund is saving all the mountain bikers from going over the handlebars in that infamous and very sandy two-mile home stretch of the ride. The project will be completed this summer. So big shout out to them because yeah, the, the hospitalers, hospitals are making money on that final two stretch, two mile stretch uh, of the mountain bike ride. So uh, to go check out Monkey Rock for some of the oldest things in Lake Tahoe as a nice adventure. Nice. All right. Yeah, I so think we did well, Mike. I yeah, think we did well. I, I do too. So there's some history for you for National Old Stuff Day and change the pages to World Wildlife Day, which is March 3rd. After this break, we've got Denise Upton from Lake Tahoe Wildlife Care. Welcome back to our highlight segment here on the Tahoe Tap, the P portion, all about the people. This is what you guys love, tuning in to take a deeper dive into, into some of the movers and shakers of the community. And we've got Denise Upton. She is everything Lake Tahoe Wildlife Care. So stay with me here. We've got a two-part introduction, one for the center to give you a little background, and then one for Denise. So Lake Tahoe Wildlife Care is it started up in 1978 and they really pride themselves on rescuing, rehabilitating and releasing. They've done over 17,000 releases of orphaned or injured wild birds and animals back into the wild after outgrowing their original property in the backyards of founders Tom and Cheryl Milham. They got a bunch of donations. This is a great foundation and they had a, a lot of fundraising going on and they purchased a 27 acre property in South Lake Tahoe in 2015. Seven buildings have been built since. We'll talk about that a little bit. That quadrupled their space for Lake Tahoe Wildlife Care for all the animals and a state-of-the-art animal care facility as well as some sophisticated enclosures allowing them to care for and successfully release more injured and orphaned animals. That's where Denise stepped in. She joined LTWC back in 1995 and became one of the most hands-on volunteers involved with daily care. She served on the Lake Tahoe Wildlife Care Board for six years and was president for two terms before being hired as the Animal Care Director in 2014. She is the first resident in the new caretaker's house at Lake Tahoe Wildlife Care's new property. And she's attended numerous wildlife rehabilitation conferences, including IWRC, CCRW, and NWRA symposiums, trainings. But more than anything, her life revolves around Lake Tahoe Wildlife Care. So I'll give you a, a moment, Denise. Anything I missed there that you want to throw in? That was an intro. <laughs> Thank you for that. Um, yeah, there was one thing. Um, the I'm not the first resident in the caretaker's house because we don't have a caretaker's house yet. That comes later on um, with the new building we're building. Right. And we're not sure who's going to reside in there yet. So we don't have anybody actually living on site yet. But um, And I actually started volunteering in 1995. Wow. <laughs> so that is I've been around a while. Yeah, I've been around a while. <laughs> Just a bit. I'm going to let Rob kick it off here with some of our questions and dive in a little deeper. 
Yeah. So Denise, last year, Lake Tahoe Wildlife Care, they announced that somewhat ambitious plan to add a first of its kind wildlife hospital and recovery center. And you you guys got some really great supporters to step up and help make this effort a reality. Can you talk a little bit about the support you received and what this project means to the basin? Yes, um, it was such a great um, a, a great thing to think about having, but we were unsure if we could ever raise the money. And the Bentley Foundation and MH Buckeye, who uh, came together and offered us a $500,000 matching grant. So that was last year. So we had to raise the other half because the building is going to cost about a million dollars. And we had such great support um, of everybody and we, we reached that goal and they're supposed to, um, we had the foundations and we just didn't have the money to build up. So we did get the money and we're gonna break ground in April. Um, this is gonna have, um, right now, if we have to do an X-ray, um, we have to send the animal or a procedure, we have to send it to a, um, usually Alpine Animal Hospital where Kevin Willits, our long-term vet will work with us. He'll have his own state-of-the-art surgical uh, area treatment room. The building will have um, places for interns. We'll have an education area where people can learn. Um, it's just gonna be a, a game changer um, to have these animals in, in this building. So. We really um, are fortunate to have supporters that helped us reach that goal of that matching grant. So this is going to be a huge game changer uh, for what we do. Fantastic. I, I do want to talk about something that's uh, that's definitely been making some waves um, <laughs> recently here. Our you know our local bear celebrity Hank the Tank he made yeah. national waves this past week. And there's right. really a lot to unpack from that situation. You, you have a lot of people that are asking, you know, why can't we just catch them and take them to another state? But there's rules against just dropping, you know, animals off in another state. Can you help people understand, you know, maybe some of those things or some of those, um, you know? Just yeah, okay. there's a lot of misunderstanding. And I saw a lot of, in, you know, misinformation. Every state has different rules. So it's up to that, you know, Nevada, we're right on the state line, they have completely different rules than we do in California. So bears, um, you have to be careful. Um, you know, they tried relocating um, bears, they've done studies. A lot of these older bears, they come right back to where they came from. And a lot of times they get hit by cars, they run into, um, you know, other issues trying to get back to where they came from. So people talking about relocation, a lot of times it just doesn't work. Um, you know, we, we're a city within a forest here. Um, we have, if it isn't bears, you've got raccoons in your attic. You've got woodpeckers pecking on your new siding of your brand new house. We've got squirrels, you know, it's, it, you, we have to, we, we have wildlife all around us. Um, and it's not just that particular area where Hank resides. It's all over Lake Tahoe. We have to do better with our trash situation. Um, dumpsters are left open at, in rest, behind restaurants and the casino corridor and apartments. And bears, are all they want is food. And they go to the path of least resistance. So if they have an area that's easy access for food, they'll just keep returning. Some of these neighborhoods where like where I live in, most of us have bear boxes because 
we had the fire back, the Angora fire years ago, and it's not worth it for him to troll up our street because he doesn't get any reward for the energy he's expending. So that's a huge issue that, you know, they, and, and hibernation, they don't hibernate if they have a food source. Right. You know, that's adding on to that. I mean, you know, in reality, that's how, you know, these types of situations with bears get started and whether it's, you know, bear box requirements or whatever, you know, what are those things that, People really need to know and understand and ultimately work towards to help prevent those types of issues. Okay. Uh, my biggest thing is social media is killing our wildlife. Um, you know, people see a bear, they stop their car, they surround the bear and they take pictures of it breaking into cars or getting in garbage. They just want to get that, that, that video to put on their social media or a bear gets up on your deck and he's got his paws up on your window and he's looking in your house we have two types of people a lot of times you know one of them are scared to death they think they're grizzly bears and they don't act at all you know like grizzly bears they think they're going to get eaten so they run in the bathroom and hide and call 911 the other half stand there and take videos and pictures and whatever bears are really smart you have to teach our bears that they get bad consequences and negative um, negative reactions for being on our property. So we need to do better with telling these bears, bad bear, you know, go mm-hmm. go after them with an air horn. You can use paintball guns. I, you know, most of the time just yelling, clapping your hands, telling them to get out of here. They're smart. They'll figure out that house gave me some negative feedback. I might not go to that one this time. If everybody did that, these bears would be a lot less likely to try breaking into houses because um, they have negative consequences and they learn quickly. Mm-hmm. So that's that's one of the big things. We have to teach our wildlife that they have an area they can go to because they're going to live in Lake Tahoe no matter what. But this is our property and you need to stay back and you need to stay in your lane and, and, and do your thing without coming onto my property and getting into my stuff. <laughs> <laughs> And the, the houses are filled with food, right? I mean, that's yeah. the ultimate yes. goal. And you talked about fire. That wipes out some of their food sources, pushes them towards the houses. So talk about something, some things that people can do to prevent this um, as wildlife creeps near our homes. Well, uh, most of, okay, there, the, the bears that were pushed into our area, the wildland bears live out in the you know, out in the forest and, and just do their thing. And they're not really around people. Um, they act completely different from our bears that were born and raised in Lake Tahoe. We have two in rehab right now. Um, they came into town during or after the fire, I believe the mom was hit by a car and killed, but you could just tell by her actions. She was freaked out. The cars were making her scared. People were making her scared. She was running through the middle of town. The cubs were following her. She didn't know what to do because she'd never been in this type of a situation um, in an urban setting like this. Our local bears are born and raised here. They walk down the street. The dogs bark at them. They don't care. They just do, you know, they, they just don't have that sense of urgency because they were raised around this. Um, but 
you know, we go back to the usual thing. You put out your bird feeders, um, take them in at night because the bears will get into them. You know, the trash is one of the biggest things. People tell me all the time, we have too many bears in Lake Tahoe. Bear biology is really interesting because they get pregnant in the summer, but the, the egg doesn't implant until right before they go into hibernation in, you know, like um, usually the, the beginning of winter. If, there's, if they're not fat enough or they don't have a food source, the egg won't implant and they won't have cubs that year. Hmm. So by a, having a constant food source, garbage, their little brain goes, wow, I got a food source. I can have two or three cubs because I got food out there anytime I need it. So by not securing our garbage, we're not only making bad bears, we're making more bears. And people, a lot of people don't understand that that's a huge component of this. It isn't just a garbage issue. It's a bear. They have their own ways. That's why they go into pop in, into hibernation is to, um, you know, save their energy and save their fat and they, they can't raise a cub if they're not fat enough. So they mm -hmm. just don't, they'll skip some years. So um, that's a huge thing. I mean, just the, the regular secure your crawl spaces right now. They're, they're, they're having cubs. If you've got a bear under your house, we can't chase it out from underneath there because it's possible they could have cubs. All bears are born in January, February. Um, they're all within, you know, weeks of each other. So all the cubs are born about the same time. They'll come out with the mom about May, but if you don't secure your crawl space and then all of a sudden say, Oh, wait, I have something under my house. You need to come get it out. Well, now it's too late and we can't do anything about it. Electricity. They hate electricity. So, you know, they have, um, the bear busters in Tahoe city, they make electric mats that the bears step on. It doesn't hurt them, but they do not like it and they leave. Um, that's how we keep our bears in at the center is a few strands of electrical wire and they won't go near it. So there's all sorts of things you can do um, to keep bears out of here, but you got to think ahead. You can't wait until cameras, you know, we have a lot of second homeowners and they call me and they say, um, I'm, I'm not there, but I'm looking at my camera and there's a bear and he's pushing on my windows and he's trying to get in my house and, you know, or now he's ripping my crawl space door off. And so you got to make sure that all that stuff is in place before you're gone for the winter or um, not here. So um, the cameras are catching a lot more than, you know, the, the old days. They didn't have that. So who knows what went on then? Right. So so we talk about bears. Let's expand into, you know, other animals, um, yeah. you know, and this is kind of a multi-part question. Um, what are some of the most difficult or maybe the most difficult animals to care for? Um, and what are the easiest? And then what do you see the most of? Um, you know, difficult. Bears are really difficult because they're so smart. You know, um, they're always testing you, you know, oh, wait, you got a little push on this in, in our enclosures. They're always trying, trying to find a way to get into something or whatever. So you just got to you've got to monitor them constantly. Um, you know, uh, another animal that we get from time to time is beavers. Beavers are very family oriented. And when you raise a baby beaver, you're their family. You literally have to carry them around with you or they kind of just huh. they just don't make it and you have to keep them for two years really? because they're they don't have the wherewithal to go out on their own 
And if they end up in another beaver's territory, they could get hurt or even killed. So beavers, um, you have to be in for the long haul. Um, they're a tough one. The porcupine, we have our ambassador porcupine, you know, he, we got him at a day old and had a bottle feed him. And um, some of the biggest challenges are trying to keep these animals wild while you're nurtured. They need to be nurtured because mm -hmm. they're babies, but then there, there's a line that you draw that you can't make them so dependent on you that you can't release them. So um, it's, it's really, you know, it's hard because you get, we get so many different species of birds and animals. The, the spring is just about going to happen. Um, squirrels, we get a lot of gray squirrels. That seems to be a real common animal that we get in in the spring. And we figured out it takes about 95 hours of bottle feeding to raise these squirrels for release. Wow. I mean, you have to feed these. Little, and there's sometimes there's six in a nest and we have multiple nests. Um, chipmunks. Um, stellar, stellar, stellar jays. Um, that's one of our biggest calls because they're a huge population of them up here. Um, they, they get in trouble a lot. Um, a lot of them are fledglings, which they jump out of the nest, which is a normal bird behavior, but people grab them and bring them to us without calling us. And we have to make them bring them back because the mom will feed them on the ground and, um, won't, you know, they're not abandoned or anything. So, Every year is a little different. You know, sometimes we get multiple fox in, sometimes we get bobcats, some years we don't get any. So it we see changes constantly in, in what we get in. Oh, so if somebody, you know, along those lines, if somebody does find an animal in distress, what's the process then? Is it, is it just calling you first? Is that? Yeah, yeah. Um, we, thank goodness for cell phones because a lot of times, what people see is not really what it is. They'll say they have a baby eagle and it'll be a baby pigeon. Um, we need to look at, so, so they'll take a photo and look at that animal. And, um, you know, we can tell them, oh no, that one isn't in trouble. It's just a natural behavior or yes, please pick it up and we'll try to get it to us. It does need help. Um, so yes, calling us first, if they can get a video or a photo, that's really helpful because we don't want to bring these animals in if they don't need our help, it's stressful for them. Uh, bunnies, baby bunnies are one of the perfect examples. Um, the mom leaves them and she comes and feeds them. She feeds them in the morning and she feeds them at night. Other than that, they're in a dirt hole with nothing there, maybe some grass over the top. And, and, and when they're really hard to raise. Um, so if people just grab them and bring them to us, a lot of them die. So we can tell them to leave it alone and, and, you know, leave it there and mom will take care of it. And hopefully, you know, that's, that's, that's a good thing. So yeah, that calling us is very first step for sure. So talk about the center a little bit. Um, can someone come visit right now? I know you opened up the outdoor learning center. It was last summer, correct? Uh, we did. And then, yeah. And then you also had some very cool webcams. Do you plan on bringing those back? Those just came back up online a week or two ago. Um, we we had some issues with them, but I was told by our IT guy that they're they should be up and running um, now. Um, and um, as far as coming to visit, we get calls all the time, and I totally understand that people want to see the animals. We're a rehab facility. We're not a sanctuary, though. Sometime in the future, 
um, we would love to be, uh, that people could come see non-releasable animals. Our responsibility is to keep these animals wild so that we can put them back into the wild. And having people around them and them getting used to people is defeats the purpose. And unfortunately that doesn't, and we don't even, um, uh, you know, stay in contact with them. We do a lot by watching them on webcams and moving them to another space to clean their area so we're not in the same space. So unfortunately we, we can't have the public, but we do, like you say, have the Outdoor Learning Center. Um, we'll, we'll start doing programs when the weather evens out here. Uh, we're gonna try to do a couple programs a week and we'll have that on our uh, social media pages when that, um, when that happens. And um, hopefully, you know, education's a huge component of what we do. And hopefully we can teach some people things about living with wildlife in Lake Tahoe and, and what you have to do to coexist. And if someone is passionate about any of this, what's the most impactful way to the center to contribute? Uh, you know, there's a couple different ways. Um, you can, you know, definitely um, monetary is great. You know, it costs a lot to rehab these animals for sure. Um, but, um, you know, you can also um, volunteer, you know, we go, we get, go through a lot of volunteers um, every year that sign up and help us and we couldn't do it without them. And um, we will soon have a, a date for our signups for volunteer training. Um, some of the volunteers don't work with the animals, some help with building things, um, outdoor enrichment uh, areas, um, all sorts of ways you can um, you can volunteer. So um, you know we have we have you know give us a call. We'll we'll find a place for you. <laughs> I'm sure. And, I mean that's uh, you, know, you got yeah. a lot going on, and whether it's we do you know if you don't have the monies and someone's got time, you yeah, know, we can do that. We have a lot so. of people with skills here in in Tahoe. So you know um, all sorts of different um, educational component of it the, you know, the building part of it. So um, we're just thankful that we have such a, a great uh, community that, that is um, really supportive of us. And, um, you know, we hope that continues for sure. Well, we appreciate the time, Denise, you know, sure. uh, urge people to get on, check out the webcams that are back yeah. up uh, yeah. and, you know, contribute however you can volunteer donation membership, just get involved with Lake Tahoe Wildlife Care. They are doing tremendous things here throughout the basin. So uh, check out the website and webcams. On the next episode, we've got Joanne Marchetta, Executive Director of the TRPA. Since 2009, she has led the TRPA and a lot of the entire Tahoe Basin through transform transformational uh, changes. And it's very fitting because we're sticking with some remarkable women that are doing great things here in the basin throughout the month of March for Women's History Month. So we appreciate you guys tuning in. Thank you, Denise, very, very much. Thank you. Denise. Thank you very much for having me. All right. That's a wrap, folks. Catch you next time.